good morning. My name is Brant. I'm the pastor here. Uh, and if you're new, just so, so grateful that you're here. Uh, and if you've been here a while, I got to ask, guys, do any of you miss Memorial Lutheran this morning? Like a little bit? I've got some no's, some yeses, okay. Uh, I just want to acknowledge that that is a totally normal part of, uh, of change happening. That the last few weeks, I don't know if you've experienced this, we've just, like a lot has happened. A lot has happened in our city, a lot has happened in the life of our church, and there are times that can feel a little bit overwhelming. Uh, and there are a lot of things here we're still figuring out, like setting up and tearing down and kid town and all that business. Uh, so, of course, it would, be, it would be, I was going to say supernatural. I don't know if that's quite the right word. It would be perfectly natural uh, to miss where we were. And I just want to acknowledge that and say that's a part of change. Uh, change is always accompanied by grief. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing to hide there. That's just true. And uh, one of the things we're doing this morning is kind of getting back into our normal rhythm uh, as a church. So we're jumping back into Genesis, and that's a part of us just learning to make a home here as we adjust to the new rhythms and the new space and all the things that go along with that. And as we get back into Genesis, uh, I want to remind you guys some of the vision of why we were preaching this book in the first place. Really, what we were hoping for and praying for in this book is that uh, it would bring uh, revival to us as a congregation. Because what's true, I think, about all of us as humans is that we desire to see revival in our lives. Now, when you hear that, you may be thinking uh, like snakes or like big tents and people falling down, and you may not want that. Okay, that's not what I'm talking about. When I'm talking about revival, I'm talking about a, a deeper or, or a, a fresh experience of life and of joy. Like on Monday, uh, I got to take the day off after Easter which was glorious. Our kids were in Parents' Day Out that day, so I got to go to the gym, and I went to the nursery, to Bates Nursery. Have any of you were there maybe this weekend? And I was there for two hours. No children, just looking at plants. It was amazing. And then I came back, and Caroline, and I was listening to this history podcast that I love the whole time, just totally nerding out. So Caroline comes home, and I'm making a sandwich, and she's like, you are so smiley right now. Like, what is going on? <laughs> I just feel so revived. Uh, there's like this experience of, of life and a lifting of the face and of the spirit that we all desire and long for. And the question for us is, how do we get that? But here's the thing about revival, is that revival uh, is, is something that you can't plan. It's like planning your own surprise party. It doesn't really work, right? It's why people hire wedding coordinators. Uh, because if you're in the, the weeds of trying to make something happen, it can rob you of your own ability to experience what is happening. And so the question for us is, and, and that same thing is true for revival, that if what we are doing is checking off boxes to get to the place that we feel more alive, it makes it hard for us to experience that life when it actually comes. So the question for us is, how do we put ourselves in the way of, uh, of joy and of life? How do we put ourselves in a position to experience something happening to us? And this is where the, the, the answer that Scripture gives us to that is unconventional and unexpected. It says the way that we put ourselves in the pathway of joy, to be surprised by joy, is through this thing called repentance. I don't know about kind of how you think about what repentance means. I think for a lot of us, when we hear repentance, we think like dour, you know, 
like downcast, kind of mopey. Like that's kind of what we associate with repentance. And so it's surprising to us that that would actually be the way that we prepare ourselves for life. But what the scriptures would teach us is that uh, repentance is what opens us up. It's, it's, what, it's how we acknowledge our need for God to do something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. So repentance is the way that we acknowledge we need God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. It opens us up, opens us up to the experience and the character of God. To a God who loves to bless us right where we are. And I'll just tell you, the next few weeks, the passages that we're in, uh, they're a little heavy. So this week is Cain and Abel. Then we got Noah and the flood, which is not like sunshine and rainbows and animals on, you know, like uh, on arcs on your, on your nursery wall. It can be a pretty dark story. After that, the Tower of Babel. Yikes. Honestly, when I was looking at the preaching schedule, I was like, is this really the way we want to come out of Easter? This is, <laughs> ee. Uh, but yes, it is. First of all, it's God's word, so it's good regardless of where we are. And also, it's, it's opening us up. It gives us opportunities to practice repentance, to see our own sin, and to let that open our hearts to revival, to a new and a deeper experience of life for ourselves, for this community, and for our larger community. So that's where we're going. I'm going to invite Ellie to come up. Ellie is reading our scripture for us. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, you can flip over to Genesis 4. If you don't have your Bible, it's going to be up on the screen. And if you don't have a Bible and you want a Bible, we have a load of them uh, on the table in the back. So you can grab one of those now or on your way out or whenever. And I'm flipping over to Genesis 4 for you now. So we didn't have that marked. Okay. Oh, no, not all of 4. 4, 1 through 16. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. I am, my, am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength." You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. 
Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of the Lord. Will you take this? Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for your word. As we open it this morning, uh, we trust you to speak to us. And Holy Spirit, that in this story uh, about death and about pain, uh, we trust you to bring life. Will you do that this morning? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm getting used to having so many things on the podium up here. Okay. So what we're going to talk about this morning is how a scarcity brings sin and death into our world. That scarcity brings sin and death into our world. And that what we see in this passage is that in response, our God brings abundant life. That scarcity brings sin and death into the world. And in that context, our God brings abundant life. I want to start by talking about scarcity. That scarcity is this thing that underpins all of our existence as humans. That regardless of how uh, any economy is ordered, it's all based on this idea of scarcity. That there are less things in the world, less goods, than, than, we, uh, than to meet the desire or the demand of the people who want them. And so because of that, we, uh, we experience all these things that we experience in the world. Like, for example, there's this new restaurant that opened, NoCo. Have any of you been there? I have not. It sounds amazing. Uh, but it's really hard to get in right now. It's impossible to get a reservation, right? And so there's this whole industry that has sprung up around helping people get this thing that is scarce, right? Like, there are apps that were created to manage the scarcity of really tasty restaurants. That's supply and demand. We see it all over the place. And, and in that sense, scarcity is a natural part of life. It's not necessarily good or, or evil. It just is a thing. And yet, there is this moral dimension to scarcity. We're like, that's why there are wars in the world. Because there's a set amount of land, and there are, more, and there are different people who want it. And so they fight over it. They fight over resources, right? Like, th this is, uh, in many ways, the source of so much conflict in our world, but also in our day-to-day -day lives, is scarcity. There's a moral dimension to scarcity. And what we see in our passage this morning is that scarcity, uh, when it takes root in our hearts, that what it gives birth to is sin, which gives birth to death. But before we get into it in this passage, I want to zoom back a little bit, because if, you, uh, if you've been with us for, for a few weeks, you'll know that where we left off in the book of Genesis was when Adam and Eve got married, which is kind of the high point of the Genesis narrative. God has created this beautiful garden. He's planted them in it. He's given Adam and Eve this call to, to go into the world and use all of their creativity and, and ingenuity and to bring flourishing out of the world, and they get to do it together. And then, just a few verses later, here we are with, with these brothers, uh, one brother killing another brother. You're like, what has happened? And what has happened in between those two things is uh, this event called the fall. And I just want to remind you uh, what happened at the fall. 
maybe tell you for the first time. Adam and Eve are living in this beautiful garden that God had planted for them, that he'd called them to cultivate with all the gifts that he had given them. And into this garden comes a snake. And what the snake says to Adam and Eve is, did God really say? So let's set aside the talking snake for a minute, okay? Uh, and talk about what this snake is saying to them. What the snake is doing is he, is he is causing Adam and Eve to question God's character, to question God's word. He's sowing doubt in their minds and in their hearts. Did God really say? And what he tells them is, oh, that, that fruit that God put in the middle of the garden, uh, he told you not to eat of it. But let me tell you, Satan says, that's who the snake is. If you keep reading, okay, this is our, our enemy. Uh, he says, God's actually holding out on you. That God doesn't want what's best for you, that actually God is being withholding. And if you really want life, what you need to do is violate this boundary that God has set and reach out and take life for yourself. Because God is, because God is holding back. That there's a scarcity of good and joy in your life, so you gotta go and get it for yourself. And Adam and Eve say, okay. And they do it. They take the fruit. They eat from it. And what it does is it brings now sin into this world. That sin, rather than being this thing is entered in, sin is now crouching at the door of all of our hearts, like, like this passage tells us, waiting to devour us. And that sin has ruined and warped Everything. And so now we come to the story of Cain and Abel. And we get this picture in the story that, that this family, this first family, has set up shop, set up camp right outside of Eden. God has put this flaming angel in front of the garden so that they can't go back there and eat from the tree of life, which would trap them in this miserable existence forever. And so they go outside of the garden, but they kind of set up camp right there. And they're doing the deal. Cain and Abel are actually living out of the promises and the call that God had given them. One is tending the ground, one is tending to the animals. They're living out uh, the, the call that was given to their parents. Like, maybe this is going to be okay. And then they bring offerings to God. Now, we're not going to get all into the details of the offering because the salient point is that God had regard for Abel's offering and not for Cain's. that God had regard for Abel's offering or, and not for Cain's. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Essentially, what this passage is saying is that God looked in favor on the offering that Abel gave. And when he looked in favor on the offering that Abel gave, he did not have fa favor on the offering that Cain gave. And we know that God is not arbitrary. So there are some clues in here as to why that is, right? That, that Abel is offering the best of his flock, the firstborn, the fat portions. But we can really get stuck kind of in that of like trying to figure out why one and not the other. But that is not really the focal point of this story. The focal point of the story is what happens next. And God says to Cain, uh, Cain's face falls. And it's almost like the, the picture in my mind is, is of Cain kind of like looking at the ground, like kind of, kicking the dirt, you know, and like grumbling about it. But he's saying to himself, I am the firstborn son. I deserve the blessing and the offering, and now you've gone and you've given it to my brother? That Cain is so offended at that. 
God says to him, why is your face fallen? That's the picture. His face has fallen. He's looking at the ground. And God comes to Cain, lifts his face. He speaks to him. He says, hey, if you do well, will you not be rewarded? He says, there's, there's blessing enough for both of you. But Cain, in that moment, ignores what God has to say, and he doubles down on the envy that he is experiencing for his brother. And what happens in Cain is that that envy gives birth to a hatred that gives birth to actual murder. It's not about... It's not about the offering. It's about what that moment with God has awakened in Cain and what that goes on to do. The envy that it's awakened and what it goes on to do. If we go back to our example of getting a reservation at NoCo for a minute, okay? Uh, it, it almost seems trite to, to use this as an example in the scope of what we're talking about, but what I want you to grasp is how easily this takes place in our very own hearts. That when someone tells you that they got into a restaurant that you really want to visit but haven't been able to get into, does that do anything inside of you? Like, is your first thought ever with that person not like, oh, wow, I'm so excited for you. How was it? Is your first thought ever like, oh, come on. (laughs) And you know, the person who got in is the person who always gets in, right? It's the person who always knows that it's the place you're going to want to get into eventually, and they just got there first. And you're like, how does this person, now, okay, how does this person have the time to know about all these things? There was a time in my life where I was fun, and I used to know these things, but I don't anymore. Not that that's anything personal for me, but <laughs> that like what that can stir up in us is envy. And we laugh about it, but what is true and what you and I know is when that envy creeps into our hearts, what it immediately starts to do is give birth to a hatred that gives birth to death. That causes us to distance ourselves from the people around us to treat them not as people, not as people made in the image of God, but as objects to judge and to scorn. But that is what envy births in our hearts. What it birthed in Cain was, was actual murder. And in the same way that it brought death to his brother, it brought death to him. Because before Cain could get to the place where he was willing to take his brother's life, he was experiencing death in himself. That's a person who was cut off from God who is ignoring God's voice in his life. Who is saying to this brother who God has given him, remember what God says in Genesis uh, 2 to Adam and Eve, or yeah, 2, it's, it's not good that man would be alone. God has given Cain this brother Abel that he would not be alone. But Cain can't see that. That what scarcity has brought into his life is sin that has given birth to death, which has brought isolation into his story that there are parts of his heart that have been killed by his refusal to listen to what God is saying to him. It's that same doubt of God's character that's at work here. I don't know if any of you are watching uh, the new season of Ted Lasso. There we go. Uh, there's this moment in the, in the last episode that I watched where uh, Rebecca, who's one of kind of the main characters of this story, this, this boss of a woman who's, who's the executive of this football, football team, I'm learning something from Ted, right? Explains how she met uh, the man who is now her ex-husband in the show. 
And she says, years ago, when I was bartending, she's talking to one of her friends, years ago, when I was bartending in that private club, Rupert, that's her ex-husband, and his then wife came into the club. He was the life and soul of the party, buying rounds of drinks for everyone, telling stories, just charm personified. He left me a massive tip. Then, about a week later, he came back, this time without his wife, and he asked me out. She says, I, of course, said no, and he left. But then he came back the next night, and the next night, and the next. And he would just sit at the bar with a drink, and he chatted to me until close. And he just said, it, it doesn't matter if you ever go out with me. It's just worth it being here with you to get to know you. And after six weeks of that, he asked me out again, and I said yes. Without any hesitation, because by that point, I felt so lucky because he wanted me. He made me feel special, chosen. That what Rebecca is speaking to is something that is deep inside of all of us. This desire to experience uh, being chosen. The desire to be special. To be valuable to other people. To experience blessing in our lives. That when we talk about favor or blessing, that's what we're talking about. That's what she's calling to mind, so, she's evoking so clearly is this desire. When we hear that, it's like, oh, that's in all of us, isn't it? And we live in a world where scarcity is, is all around, and, and we live in a, in a world where scarcity is a zero-sum game. That I know that if you got into that restaurant, that means I did not get in. And we see it so often that it's the way we do our relationships. That there's only so much of other people, so much love, so much attention, so much care, so much specialness to go around. And I am, and we are, deathly afraid that there is not enough for me. And if I'm going to get it, I'm going to have to come and fight for it. And because we want it so much, we will do anything. That's what Rebecca is saying. She's willing to, to go out with a man that she knows is already married because her desire to be chosen and to be special is so great. But what ends up happening to her is that it ruins her. And that is what is true for us. That as we are willing to cross the boundaries that God has set in our lives to get what we want, to go and get that specialness, the chosenness, the blessing, and the favor that we most deeply desire, that what it brings into our lives and the lives of those around us is suffering and death. And you could read plenty of self-help people who will tell you, so just start living an abundant life. Just change your mindset. But here's the thing, the resources in this world are scarce. That's the reality. And so, and, and, and changing our mindset about scarcity doesn't suddenly make everything in the world abundant, does it? That's to live in a world that is not true, to, to deny reality, unless, unless there is a being in the world who is infinite unless there is a being in the world whose goodness is infinite. And unless there is a being in the world whose goodness is infinite and he desires to share that goodness with us. And that is the God that we find in this passage. Praise God. Is a God who is infinite and infinite in his goodness and desires to share it with us. And we see it in the way that God responds to Cain. That when Cain's face has fallen, when he's kicking the dirt, that God would grab Cain's face and lift it up. Say, Cain, 
there is blessing for you too. If you do well, will you not be accepted? He's telling Cain, there's abundance for you. There's blessing for you here and now. Will you lift up your face and see it? Will you receive it? He's inviting Cain into repentance and the life that comes from that. And Cain will not hear it. And where it drives him is to the murder of his brother. And even there, God has mercy for him. That he comes to find him. Where is your brother Abel? Cain's response, am I my brother's keeper? Whoa. The arrogance. And even there, God says to Abel, what have you done? Do you hear God's heart breaking? Breaking not only because of what has happened to Abel, but his heart breaking for the hardness of heart that's in Cain. What have you done? Your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So God tells Cain about the consequences of his decision. And Cain says, this punishment is too much for me to bear. This punishment you gave me. And God says, not so. What God is saying is that Cain, even in this sin that is so so heinous, there is mercy for you. Not so. I will put a mark on you to protect you. That even as you suffer the consequences of this sin, I will be over you to protect you. That, that is a, a grace and an abundance that is at once so offensive and so comforting, is it not? Because we are a people who are in need of that much mercy. And what we see in this passage is that our God has a love that's abundant, that never runs out. That the restaurant where we are all trying to get reservations, uh, it never runs out of seats. And that when someone else gets the seat, it takes nothing away from us. This is what Paul says about the amount of goodness that God has. When he's talking about the gospel, he says it's all for your sake so that his grace extends to more and more people. It may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. It is all for your sake so that his grace extends to more and more people. It may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. That God's grace is so abundant that as much as you take from it, there is still more. That it never runs out. As a side note, that's why we're in this building, friends. Because what we believe is that God's grace never runs out and so we want other people to be able to experience that grace. And we have talked about this before. It can feel threatening to have other people who are new in the room. If you're here and that's you, we're so glad you're here. Because what we believe is that God's grace is so abundant that having you here doesn't diminish it for us in any way, but it actually makes it greater. That the love that God has poured into our hearts that he's gifted us in the experiences of relationship with each other, that God only wants to increase that love by bringing other people here. So thank God that you're here. That is the abundant love that God has for us. And it is a love that does not stop when we follow through on our sin. 
But in the same way that God would come to us and lift up our face and say, I'm, I'm with you. If you do well, will you not be accepted? There is so much favor for you that even when we walk into sin, there is still mercy for us. And there is more mercy for us. We know that mercy in a deeper way because we know a blood that Hebrews tells us speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And that blood is the blood of Jesus. Because Abel's blood cries out from the ground, justice. Abel's blood demands that God would do justice in the world. And that is the cry of all the innocent blood that has ever been spilled over the course of human history. Justice. It's the cry of the oppressed. God, would you come and do justice? It's the cry of the oppressed even here in our own city. God, would you come and do justice? It's crying out. The ground is crying out for justice. We cry out for justice, don't we? Do you ever cry out for it? Jesus, come quickly, do justice. And yet, when we call God to come and do justice, what we are forced to reckon with is that when God brings justice, that justice would also fall on us. Because you may not have murdered someone, although you may have. I don't know. But we have all hated people in our hearts, haven't we? Envied other people, judged other people, hated other people. Other people created in the image of God. And those sins cry out for justice. And friends, if we knew how heavy the burden was on us because of our sin, if we had a full grasp of the, of the weight of it, it would crush us. And yet, even with a little bit that we have or that we know, we can tell God, God, the punishment for that sin is more than I can bear. And Hebrews tells us, in that place, the blood of Jesus speaks a better word. Because Jesus' blood cries out, justice has been done. That when Jesus' blood was spilled, it was not because of anything he did, it was to cover us. That he received the punishment that we deserve so that we could stand before God, have our, our relationship with him restored. That what we now get to cry because of what Christ has done is, God, would you do justice for me? And what is justice for me is you having grace on me because Jesus has already taken all of that wrath. That our God is a God who abundantly brings and pours out his life on his people. Friends, and that is what calls us into repentance. To being willing to acknowledge before God, my sin is more than I can bear. And I only know this much of it. Lord, my sin is more than I can bear. Let me tell you what it is. How would you forgive me for it? Would you come and do for me what I cannot do for myself? And friends, the, the degree to which we will experience life as Christians is the degree to which we are willing to come before God and acknowledge that we have sin in our lives. I don't know about you, but the way that we, I don't even know this is something that we have to be taught. This is what is in us as people, that when we think about what it means to live the Christian life, we think that it's this journey of progressively getting uh, less and less sinful. Do you ever think that? Like if you were to chart the course of your life, it would be kind of, it would be like this line graph of holiness over time. And the goal is that it would be uh, slanted in the right direction. And that's the way we can think about our stories. 
Like, you know, well, uh, you know, I was in high school, and so this is like kind of the camp way of thinking about it, and then like I dated this girl, and that was not so good, and then I did, and then I got back from camp, and it was a real high, but, and I threw away all of my music that had cursing in it, and so it got even higher, and I stopped downloading illegal music, and it got even higher, but then there was that song, and I really loved it, and I downloaded it again, and, and that's how we think about our lives, right? And in that way of thinking about our Christian lives, what you and I have to do is lie to ourselves and lie to God because we have to ignore sin to make ourselves seem better to ourselves and to everyone else around us. Because we're so busy comparing our inside to everyone else's outside. Friends, that is not the Christian life. But I will tell you, the longer that you walk with Jesus what you will see more and more is your deep and abundant need for him. And there are times that that is a painful thing to see, but what he, what he promises us is that there is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance and then welcomes us into a newness of life. And the deeper we walk into that, the higher the corresponding experience of life and joy that we have in ourselves. And that changes the way that we think about repentance because so often we come before God and we, if we get to the point where we say, God, I'm sorry, we come like, a, like Sisyphus. Do you know that, just like this Greek story of this guy who was a king who killed everyone who came to his palace and so the gods judged him. And what he had to do into eternity is push this stone up a hill and every time it got close, it would roll back down. That is how we so often relate uh, to repentance in the Christian life that we say to God, I'm sorry, God, I'm so sorry, now I'm gonna get busy pushing this rock up the hill again. And we almost get there, and then phew, it like tumbles back down. I'm like, okay, well, I'm gonna go down there, start again, and push it back up. There is no joy in that, right? No, God is saying, I have called you into an entirely different way of living, into a love that is so abundant, a grace that is so abundant, that when you repent from your sins, you are not getting thing, anything new from God. You are only coming to a deeper understanding of his grace. And what he is saying is, you don't have to push a rock up anything to prove anything to me. I've given this to you as a gift. So let's stop pushing the rock. You and I are not doing any favors for God when we do that. The call is that we would know, come in repentance, lay those sins down and cry out, God, would you now do justice? And the justice that you will do to me is to have grace on me because I am so confident, not in what I have done, but what Jesus has done for me. Friends, that is the gospel. And now that invites us into a, I've said this so many times, a totally different way of living. That's a gospel way of living. Because now we get to live in the boundaries that are around us and say, God, I don't, I don't always understand them. I don't always get them. Sometimes they're painful. Sometimes your boundaries bring pain into my life, but I am willing to stay here because I know that here you are being abundantly good to me right where I am. And that when we look at our lives, the pain and suffering that we know is on our inside and we compare it to everyone else's outside that they don't have, that we are free from having to wonder, God, what did I do to deserve this? Because it's not about that anymore. Oh, we are free to repent of that envy that so often consumes our lives and brings death to us and to the people around us. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Oh, that we are being called into this way of living, a way of love. That the love that has been poured out abundantly on us would be a love that we get to now go and pour out abundantly into the world. Even at great cost to ourselves. That is what it looks like for us to be a people, uh, a people of grace. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, we confess that our sins, Lord, are so great that if we were to be aware of the depth of them, the amount of them, the volume of them, and that the punishment that they, that they deserve, God, it, it would crush us. Thank you in your mercy that you show us that sin even a little bit at a time. And God, even that little bit that we see, we know that the punishment for that is more than we can bear. Thank you, God, uh, for coming to bear that punishment for us. Lord, we cry out justice because of what you have done on our behalf. And Father, as we worship, as we respond, would you be gentle in showing us the places in our heart that you are inviting us to revival by opening up our hearts, opening our eyes, Holy Spirit, to see where you're calling us to, to see our sin? And as we lay that before you, would you be drawing us not into this shame cycle of pushing a rock up a mountain, but into the joyous freedom that comes from being a people who are forgiven? We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.